the words of Psalm 1, the two paths, the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. Not unlike the two paths that Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount, the, the narrow way and the broad way. But we have here uh, two paths before us. The righteous path are those who are like trees growing by rivers. They are a symbol of strength and stability and loyalty to God. But then the wicked path, they're like the chaff. And that goes to the ancient practice of separating wheat from chaff. The farmers would gather the wheat into their barns. They would go to the threshing floor where there was a, a breezeway. And they would take their winnowing fork and they would toss up the wheat into the air. The grains of the wheat would fall and the chaff, the straw, would blow into the wind. Much is like that the path of the wicked. And it's this idea of separation of wheat and chaff that's really found throughout Scripture. We hear it in John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, the one preparing the way of the Messiah. He comes with the announcement out in the desert that the kingdom of heaven is at hand and it's time to repent. Israel needs to turn to God. And then he says this in Matthew chapter 3. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And for John... And for the psalmist from Psalm 1, this separation of wheat and chaff is a metaphor for judgment. And there's no gray area. There are two paths. And this really speaks to an orientation in life. Either we are walking toward God, and they're, they're swerving, but we are moving toward God, or we're moving to something that is not God. There's no in-between when it comes to Psalm 1 and the words of John the Baptist and really the words of our Lord Jesus, as we'll see here in a moment in this parable. We're going to continue this series on parables called Stories with Intent. Uh, Jesus told a lot of stories in his teaching, and these stories had purpose. They, they had a, a mission to unpack what the kingdom of God is all about, the kingdom of God that has invaded this world, the kingdom of God that we are a part of here at Brentwood Oaks. And over the last few weeks, we've been working through a series of agricultural parables, agricultural stories. And we're a bit removed from that. Some of us, most of us, we're not part of an agricultural society anymore. We left the farm. We've gathered in cities now, even though we have a few among us who still work on farms. But the ideas behind these parables are readily accessible to us. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about the parable of the sower and this idea of paying attention to how we hear, focusing on the words of Jesus to find life, and then obeying it leads to life. And then last week, Woody Woodrow took us through the parable of the growing seed there in the Gospel of Mark. And he told that story of, of the late Tony Ash, who has really blessed many people in this congregation, uh, a teacher of the Bible. 
But he grew up not going to a church, and he had a teacher who challenged him to memorize Scripture, and those seeds of Scripture were planted deep into his heart, and they grew over time and blossomed, and really he was a benefit to the kingdom of God. This morning we're going to look at the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And it's a parable that comes in a string of parables. If you want to turn to the back of your order of worship, I've listed those parables in Matthew chapter 13. If you want to turn to Matthew 13, we're going to be in verse 24 here in a moment. Matthew being the first book of the New Testament. But you can look at the different parables. Each one of these parables adds another layer, gives us another dimension to what the kingdom of God is about. If I were to identify two main themes that run through these parables, it would be the themes of of hearing and doing, uh, but also judgment. And so you have the hearing and doing, which is related to our growth, but then there is judgment. And those two themes are going to come together in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. So, with the words of Psalm 1 in the back of our minds, the the psalm about the two paths, let's hear the parable of the wheat and the weeds. From Matthew 13, beginning in verse 24, we'll skip the next two parables and go to the interpretation. Hear the word of God. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So a servant said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Skip on down to verse 36. This was a parable to the crowds, and now he's talking to his disciples. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then 
the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. And then the familiar refrain, he who has ears, let him hear. May God bless the hearing and the reading of his word. So back in September in the introduction sermon to this series, I listed out 11 characteristics of parables, and much of this came from the conversation partner that I'm using in this series from a man named Klein Snodgrass, which will be the name of our next child if we have one. <laughs> Boy or girl, it doesn't matter. But one of the characteristics that Snodgrass brings out in the, is that interpreting the parables really begins with trying to identify the right question that's being answered by the parable because with parables, you can go in all different directions in interpretation. And a way to narrow that interpretation and connect it to what Jesus is actually saying is to discover the question that's actually being answered. It's, it's the game of jeopardy. We're given the answer in the parable. We have to find the right question. Now, sometimes this is very easy to do. It's very obvious. Uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan, for example. Do you remember the question that was being asked when Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan? Well, it says in the Gospel of Luke, the lawyer asked, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, well, once upon a time there was a man and tells one of the most famous parables that he tells. Sometimes it's very clear what question is being addressed. But other parables, like the one we have today, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, it's not so obvious what question is being asked here. I mean, there's the larger question, what is the kingdom of heaven like? But that doesn't really move us toward the interpretation of this parable. So what's the question? Well, what I hear and what I see in this parable of Jesus is the question about evil. What to do about evil? What is the timeline for evil? Why is there evil right now? If the kingdom of God has truly come into this world, why is there still evil? Why is there evil on a global scale, on a corporate scale, on an individual level, which we all see face to face in our daily lives? It's the question of the problem of evil. And this really goes to our expectations of God, our expectations of the kingdom, and really goes to the heart of the expectations of Israel. When they were thinking and waiting for the Messiah, when they were waiting for the kingdom, they had all these prophecies that pointed to this kingdom that was going to come. And they had expectations about the Messiah. We hear these expectations at the beginning of the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, when the resurrected Lord is with His disciples. He's about to ascend to the right hand of the Father, and think about that for a moment. What would you think if you were one of the disciples and you were talking with the risen Lord? Think about what you just witnessed. You witnessed Jesus from afar. You had run away. But you had witnessed him from afar being crucified. You saw what the Romans did to him. He, he died. He was buried. And now he's walking among us. What would you be thinking? I know what I would be thinking. This man is bulletproof. The Romans couldn't kill him. Now it's time to take out the Romans. 
And I think that's what's behind the question that the disciples have for Jesus in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, when they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? I think underneath that is, Lord, is now the time to take out the Romans? They can't kill you. And that's what they were envisioning. The Messiah was going to be this political figure, and we actually find that in the Old Testament scriptures. He was going to be this military-like figure. He was going to rule with an iron scepter in shades of Psalm 2. The nations would be judged. Israel would be restored to its place of prominence. No wonder they had these expectations of the Messiah. But then Jesus gives them an answer. Well, it's not really an answer. He actually dismisses their question. Lord, is it now time to restore Israel? And Jesus says, don't worry about the time. It's not yours to figure out the timing of all this. What you have to do right now is you need to be witnesses. Witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's what you need to worry about. Don't worry about the times. But I think it's in Jesus dismissing their question or answering it in a way that they didn't really expect. I think that connects back to this earlier parable, the parable of the wheat and the weeds. And this morning, I have a two-point sermon. Two points, two images that I pray will give us something to think about and chew on here as the people at Brentwood Oaks. So the first image comes in a question, and I'm taking great risk in asking this question. Do we live in a Star Trek world or a Star Wars world? Now, I know by asking that question, I've lost half of you. <laughs> but hang in there. Some of you might learn the difference between Star Trek and Star Wars. Really, what we're talking about are two competing visions of reality. So let's talk about Star Trek. Star Trek is set in the future. I'm here, this is all hearsay. I don't really know about this. <laughs> Star Trek is set in the future. And Star Trek is unabashedly humanist in its vision. The creator of Star Trek makes no apologies. It is humanistic. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, in Star Trek, in the future, and we see this with a lot of science fiction, the human race has come to a point where they have eradicated evil. They have eradicated crime. They have eradicated war. They have eradicated disease. There's this global cooperation. It's a kind of utopia. Much like that, the John Lennon song, Imagine. It's a perfect world. Well, how was this utopia achieved according to the Star Trek vision of reality? Well, it is done through human advancement, human progress, science, and reason. And it's interesting to imagine a world like that. It's a world that is championed by modern humanists and the new atheists that have risen over the last 20 years, especially that if we just let science and reason have their way, we can create and maintain a moral society. It's interesting to imagine that kind of world. But my critique would be, I think it is an overly optimistic 
perhaps a grossly optimistic vision of the human heart. I don't buy that vision. I think much more closer to reality, especially when we talk about good and evil, is the Star Wars world. Every time the evil empire is defeated, evil creeps up somewhere else. In the Star Wars world, there's light, and then there's darkness. There's a dark side, and we, we recognize that. And far from being eradicated, evil's not going anywhere in the Star Wars universe. And I think that's closer to the Christian vision of reality. I think that's a theme picked up in the parable of the wheat and the weeds. As I was reading this this week and thinking about it and trying to think about what, what word am I hearing for this church? What word am I hearing for myself? My mind kept going back to this idea of the master of the field saying, don't pull up the weeds. You might pull up the wheat. The wheat and the weeds are allowed to coexist. The wheat and the weeds grow up together. Evil is not going anywhere. Which in my mind is a very healthy assessment of humanity and our current circumstances. When we think about the evils that we face in the world, the promises from centuries ago that evil would be eradicated, we still have wars and rumors of wars. We still have hunger and thirst for power. We look within ourselves. We still battle greed and lust and the exploitation of the weak. And even beyond evil, we have things like the brokenness of this world, death and disease. These are woven into the fabric of a fallen world. And there are forces that are behind this, and Jesus names them. And Paul would later name them in Ephesians chapter 6. There are forces beyond humanity at work here, forces that we don't quite understand. Those forces of spiritual darkness in what's called the heavenly realms. And this view of the world is not pessimistic as much as it is realistic. What Jesus gives, here in the par- gives us here in the parable of the wheat and the weeds is not some pie-in-the-sky utopian view of humanity and life here on earth. Jesus gives us an accurate picture of the way things are. He gives us truth. Evil's not going anywhere. We can't reason evil out of people because our actions don't really come out of our thinking. We can't legislate evil out of people. We can maybe mitigate it, which I think is the role of Christians in politics. We need Christians in politics. We cannot coerce evil out of people. We are in this together. The children of the kingdom and the children of the devil, we overlap Our roots are interconnected with one another. And that's kind of a downer. And the parable of the wheat and the weeds would be a downer if it ended with that. 
Here's the other point. Yes, in human history, with all due respect to the Star Trek vision of the future, evil's not going anywhere. But in the parable of the wheat and the weeds, Jesus reminds his disciples and he reminds the church that evil will not go on forever. That evil will not have the last word. There will be a time when the world is ripe and ready for a harvest and that that winnowing fork that John the Baptist talked about will come to fruition. And it won't be by our own power, it won't be by our own ingenuity that we achieve this, that we drive evil out. It will come from the one who is beyond us. It will come from the one who is transcendent over this world, the one who holds the world in his hands, the one who created us and gave us the breath of life, the one who redeemed us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's this view of the world, it's this this view of the end that gives the people of God something that is so precious to us. It's what these flowers represent here. It's why yesterday we could gather together and say goodbye to one of our dear sisters in Christ whose body succumbed to death and disease, and we arrived here with sorrow in our hearts. But we also came here with profound joy because we have hope. We have this living hope through the resurrection. We have hope that this is not how it's always going, always going to be. This is not the end-all, be-all. Evil will not have its day forever. We are moving toward a harvest time. And even when our last breath comes, that won't be our end. It will be our beginning. Because evil and death and disease and chaos and sin will not have the last word. And there's going to be a reckoning for those spiritual forces that are wreaking so much havoc in this world. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. Judgment Day is good news. Justice is good news. And as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who cling to the cross and to the tomb that was found empty, we hold the two, the two points of the parable of the wheat and the weeds, we hold them in tension with one another. That evil is not going anywhere, but evil is not going to go on forever. And we live in that intersection between the two. It's the intersection of the cross. That's why we gather here week after week. That's why we gather here at the table to remember the victory that is ours in Jesus Christ, the victory that has already begun, the victory that will one day be fully realized whenever God wraps this up. And so I mentioned that I would give two points and two images. Uh, The final image comes in the invitation song and it's the story behind the invitation song. 
It is well with my soul. And there are many who are familiar with the story of that song, Horatio Spafford. Horatio experienced a moment in his life, moments in his life, where he lived right in that intersection between the darkness, evil, brokenness of this world, and the profound hope and joy. He lived right in the middle of that. He experienced unspeakable tragedy. He lost all of his possessions in a fire, and then a few months later, his wife and his five or six daughters were were traveling over the Atlantic on a boat, and the boat sank, and he lost five out of six of his daughters, all within a couple of months. But it's out of that grief, it's out of that gloom, of that indescribable tragedy, where Spafford penned these words of hope and joy that have rarely been surpassed. And this song has been a source of tremendous hope for the people of God ever since they were written So as we sing this song of invitation, I would encourage us to consider our own challenges in life right now, to consider our own tragedies, and to remember that, yeah, evil's not going anywhere, and bad things happen to good people, and bad things will continue to happen to good people, but that's not the end of the story. Evil will have its day, and there will be a day when God will make all things new. And people who have oriented themselves around the cross and the empty tomb and the way of God our Father will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. But those who have ears to hear, let them truly hear. We want to offer the song of invitation at this time. It is the invitation to reorient ourselves on the way, the way of the righteous, by God's grace. We are being transformed. There are moments when we walk off the path and we have the opportunity this morning to get back on the right path. If you need prayers from your brothers and sisters in Christ to help you do this, now is the time to come forward. If you have come to faith and you recognize your need to be baptized, to walk through the waters, to have your old self crucified, to be raised to walk in newness of life, we can do that as well. If you've done this and you would like to place membership with us, uh, please come to the front as we stand and as we sing.